a, a very popular series, <laughs> God and Government, and I want to warn you that um, this is not the religious right telling people how to vote. Okay, this is not a political discussion. It really isn't. This is a theological discussion. And I try to keep it in that frame because uh, people don't understand government. They think in terms of politics. Who is who? Who's the person? Where's the bumper sticker? What, am I red or blue? And I just want to cut through all that and back to the Bible because God's word gives us a worldview about this topic and it's really a central topic to your destiny. Government is your destiny as a believer in Jesus Christ because the kingdom of our Savior is a political rule on planet Earth and it's coming. It was promised to, the, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the throne he sat on, the rule over, over Israel, would be occupied by one of his sons forever. And that is not the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is not Christ sitting in your heart ruling. That is an actual coming kingdom that Jesus Christ will bring and establish. And we just sang about it in hymn number 171, Joy to the World, the Savior reigns. We're looking for that day when Jesus comes, not in his first advent, but in the second advent when he comes back and establishes this kingdom. And what does that have to do with you? You, the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, are being marked out to rule beside him in administration in this coming kingdom. And mankind, this is where I get pretty political and cynical about our time. This is as political as I'll get. Mankind, red or blue, donkey or elephant, mankind is not going to get this right. Jesus Christ, God the Son in the flesh of man, is going to get it right. And we need to be very cynical about the prospects of human government. That's a great application of this. Be cynical. Be expecting graft and corruption and wickedness and every, every political <clears throat> capital in all the states and the one in D.C. Is, is, the, is the cesspool of the greatest corruption and darkness in whatever, whatever geographic location. D.C. Is the, is the swamp. It is the cesspool. It is the, the graft and the corruption headquarters of the United States. And Hartford and the state capitals do this as well in all, the, in all the capitals because of the brokenness of man. And this, the theology, Christian theology, is that God is righteous. Man is in his volition against God in the garden, sinful. And we all are in desperate need of a Savior, all of us in desperate need of a Savior. And until Jesus comes with a sinless reign and a, the power to execute it, we're going to be disappointed by human government. That's a great application of this study. But what I want to talk about today, we call it the divine institutions. And this is a big part of a Christian worldview. And it has to do, everything to do with the biblical portrayal of human government. And the most important topic in this discussion of God and government is individual self-determination. What you do with your freedom to make choices. What you do with what's been delegated to you in your rule. Government is always the making of decisions. Government is always the management of resources. It's always what am I going to do with this thing that's been entrusted to me. This is why our government was designed as a great uh, hindrance. It was, it was designed with all these checks and balances to restrain it. Because if you give it power to kill, 
and it's unrestrained power to kill, then that's, then that's going to be the sinfulness of man plus unrestrained power to kill. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we saw that in the 20th century in the various uh, totalitarian governments. That, that's the problem of, and I'm just demonstrating our sinfulness and that we should be cynical. But it all goes to individual self-determination. Let me illustrate. One of the great government uh, portrayals in all of world history is in the Word of God, and we read about David's great failure uh, with Bathsheba. Remember the story, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where David is the king, and he should be out leading his soldiers. When the kings go out to war, David was at home. And we've, we've studied this recently, that David has a personal failure in his own self-determination. He makes the wrong choice. But he's the king, and it has an impact on many people and his household and uh, the, the multi-generational discipline that comes to David's house because of this one choice that an individual makes. It just shows you how important government is, self-government. And you and I aren't, I'm not in government. No, you are. You have things that have been entrusted to you. What? Like what? What's mine? Open, close. You can use your hands. Walk around a little bit. Those of you that can, you have legs and feet. You have a brain. I mean, almost all, no, we all have a brain and we can think. These are the greatest things that have been delegated to us. How much money would you trade your right arm for? If you have a number, don't answer. That's That's a worldview problem for you right? You, you have the ability to live in this body, and it's the most wonderful physical thing that you can ever imagine. Of all the things that you have, you have your body, and it's been delegated to you. And Paul says, First uh, Thess 4, to possess your vessel. That's your body in sanctification and honor. Rule over what's been entrusted to you. That's what government in the Bible is really about, is the ability to make decisions, and it goes to every individual. And aggregations of individuals have countries, and then we get the mess. And so I want to talk about the divine institutions, the institutions of delegated divine authority. Everything begins with the first institution, the first delegation. And we read about that in Genesis 1. We call divine institution or the delegated institution of divine authority, number one. It's in God's initial design parameters of mankind and his instructions to the first humans. That's the first place that you encounter the first institution. And everyone has it. You all have a volition, the ability to make choices. You're not a puppet. You're not on a remote control. You are personally responsible for the choices that you made. Oh, but I was hurt when I was a kid. Yes, those were volitional choices made by those other people that hurt you, and they're responsible for their choices. Here's the thing, though. Now today, you are responsible for your choices given the fact that you've got pain and and stuff in the background. You still are now responsible for the choices that you make, and that's that's the hard reality of being in the fallen and broken world with fallen and broken people around us. And I know you and I want to get rid of all of the fallen and broken people. But that's the flood, except for eight people. And that's coming. That We've been studying that in Isaiah. There's coming. Planet Earth is going to be wiped clean. And that makes us get involved in evangelism because God's wrath is coming. Divine institution number one, that capacity to choose, is in Genesis 1.26. And God said... Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's the metaphysical reality of what you are. You're God's image bearer. And let them rule. That's the function he designed us for. Let them rule over the works uh, that God had made, the lower creatures, the fish, the birds, the cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
whatever God made as a lower creature. And these living beings are a higher order than the trees and the rocks and the soil. These, these, because try to make one. The AI project is trying to make life. We're trying to find a way to make something alive. We can't. We can't. It won't, it won't be alive. Whatever they come up with with their little algorithms, it'll never, I believe, simulate sufficiently human life, or or any life, because it's a God thing. Life comes from life. And and so what I'm saying is that's a controversial topic. But what I'm saying is that God designed us for the capacity to make choices, and those choices are reflected in the word "let them rule." Every rulership action is a volition. It's a choice that you make with your capacity to make choices. Think of it that way. When someone oppresses you, they're making a choice that's affecting you in a way that you think is an, is an encroachment on your ability to make choices. See what I mean? That's what government is, and that's what it does. The, the prisons are full of people that would rather not be in there. Some maybe want to be in there, but most of them desperately don't want to be in there. But yet someone has made a choice that, no, you are going to be in there, and that's the judge and all the infrastructure in the prison system. We've talked about the prison system, and check out last time on God and government about my opinion of it. I think there's many forms of slavery and many ways to define it, and I'm not a huge fan of how we deal with, uh, with, with, uh, with the penal code. I like what the Bible does in, in, in the, the book of... Uh, <clears throat> The books of Exodus and Numbers of Deuteronomy. But you're made to make decisions. That was the original design. And that is a big deal. Man's capacity to rule in God's place, according to God's interests, includes many things, but the most important ability to rule is the ability to choose. Volition. V-O-L-I-T-I-O-N. I'll put my laser beam on and point at it. Volition, not violation. If you commit a violation, you are responsible for exercising your volition in a wrong capacity. And I know that that's a big word and people are like, can't you use a simpler word, free will or something? The word free will is filled with theological overtones that uh, while I think it's a sound word, I don't think it's helpful. So I like the word volition, the capacity to make choices. They're real choices. They're not choices that are, you know, God made it and then you uh, are simulating making a choice. You are really, by every light in God's word, making your choices. And, that, I'm, and I understand, I don't fully think we can resolve God's sovereignty of man's volition in, or free will in, uh, in our ability to reason. It's an infinite difference between us and God. If I believe in the, the decrees. I believe in God's sovereignty. I just don't know how what the Bible clearly states about our volitional responsibility interfaces with God's sovereign decree. I, I don't think anyone knows that. And everyone that tries to summarize it in their theology uh, makes a horrible mistake of bringing God down to where man is and saying sovereignty is the same as volition. And it's not. It's not. It's, and so I'm, I'm a person that says there's great mystery between us and God. But this is not a mystery. God delegated that you would rule, and that means the ability to make decisions. We have called this ability the great delegation, the great capacity, the great delegation from God. And this is, this is so important. The, the, the choice to say, I'm going to be angry at God because he made me this way and my life is hard and so I'm angry. That's a choice that you make. Anger always is a choice. 
I know we say in our culture, we say, so-and-so made me angry, but it's really not true. I learned from my French teacher. In French, they say, you make yourself angry. Symmetra en color. You, it's a reflexive verb, <laughs> which is kind of fun because I think that's a better reflection of the way anger works. It's a choice. There's always a volitional component to the things that we're doing. And that is a marvelous thing, a marvelous delegation. Without volition, you can't have a relationship. And this is something that your culture, a blind squirrel every once in a while finds a nut. A broken clock, analog clock, is right twice a day, right? In our broken, godless, secularized culture, we have seized upon something that is the last bastion of sexual morality, and it is the word consent. Today, the last thing on sexual morality in the broad culture is consent. That if you don't consent, then that's assault and rape. And if you do consent, then it's okay, well, everything goes. And that's not any real basis for morality. Understand, that's not God's design of sexual morality, but it does recognize volition. It does recognize the right and responsibility we have to make our choices sexually. So, there, I mean, we found something that actually reflects God's image. Watch it. This one's going down. The, the idea of consent is going away, especially when we talk about minors and adults. In my generation, in my lifetime, I fear if this culture continues to decline, unless God turns off the power or something, I think we're going to see the, the erosion of, of, of consent provisions for children. And I, I know this because they're taking the children to, 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 to puberty blockers and surgeries for sexual identity and trans and stuff before they're mature, before their brain is half-formed. And they're saying that's health care, that's what's right for children, that's the new morality. That's, that's the attack on consent. That's the attack on, on uh, what we've understood as minors and adults. And if you can do it with a, with a surgery that, that mutilates your body, then, I mean, I mean, might as well just let, you know, let it go. The, the, the craven people that reflect the... Greek cultures and their universal homosexuality with boys and the and the the, um, the Spartans universal universal among the Spartan citizens that they were homosexual and they would they would destroy young boys and made a universal culture because uh, because it's it's as as much acquired as a, an inherent tendency and um, that's that's where we're tending as a culture and uh, it's not new it's been with us for th- thousands of years since the man the human race was with us because we're sinful and broken. And that's a little rabbit trail, but see, relationship requires volition. It requires the ability to say yes. Sex slavery, sex trafficking, and human trafficking, this is most egregious to us because it is removing the agency or the volition of the individual to this area of life, which is divine institution number two, marriage. God made that. That's his institution. It's got its accoutrement. It's got its things that go with it. Like sex, the act of marriage, it has uh, responsibilities and commitments. And we're doing something horrific, going beyond just the destruction of the institution volitionally. We're forcing people, the culture is forcing people uh, in allowing this to, uh, to violate their volition in this area. And it's, you know, it really strikes a nerve when we think about it. But there is no relationship without the ability to choose. And I'm saying between you and God, I can't really relate to him if he's not allowing me to, to take in his word, believe it, and respond to him. I, I'm not really in a relationship with him. I'm an instrument. I'm not a personal agent. That's so central to being a personal being. 
Volition plus God's revelation equals a genuine relationship with God on his terms. It's real simple. This is the mathematics of, of volition. And this is what the, the great delegation is for. It's for many things. I'm going to rule and all that, but it's for him. I'm ruling for him, and it's relational. Volition plus revelation, that's God's word, equals a genuine relationship with God. So what I'm saying is that you, there's no other equation. There's no revelation without volition. There's no volition without revelation. That doesn't work. You can't, well, I just choose to love God. But you don't know him. You don't know what he said, and you're choosing to ignore what he said because you're arrogant. And that's a choice. And that's a problem. And it, it all goes back to individual responsibility. If you see it this way, then you can see our capacity to make choices is for worship. Because I'm going to make my choices to please him. And this is for you that are wondering about how am I supposed to make decisions. Am I supposed to look for, uh, you know, I'm feeling like, I feel like the number 23, 23, 23 just keeps coming up. And I'm driving on the interstate and I see exit 23. <gasps> God told me to go exit 23. We don't, we don't operate this way. We don't, we don't believe this is how God is communicating with us because it's confusion, and God isn't the author of confusion. God has told us what he wants, and we know what's right because he told us, and we know what's wrong because he told us, and he, we know because he told us and we believed him, and that's spiritual knowledge. And so if you think about this, the best way to think through decision-making is the question, what is the worship choice? What's the one that would be for him? What's the one that reflects what he said, what he wants, and I'm doing it in an act of worship to him. It'll get you to move from Texas to Connecticut. <laughs> what's the worship choice? What's the one, what's of, of the many options, which one should I pursue? Men, young, young single men, which one should I pursue towards marriage? I mean, I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, there are so many, so many different potentialities with people. They're so complex. And what I, uh, I've tried to really get to know the person now, but I don't know what I'm going to have 20 years from now. And you don't, and you can't. So what, how do you make your choice? It's so encouraging to say, God, I'm going to give this one to you. I'm going to make this choice based on my desire to worship you. And I'm trusting you with this. And it really gives you some stability. And, and you might make a bad choice. You might mess it up. But I don't think you're supposed to be wondering, which one does God want me to do? I don't know which one. I just, I could pick A or B. Or I could go to door number three. And I, I just, I, relax. Relax. Ask God to help you know how to worship him with your decisions. And I think it's really um, about wisdom. It's about wisdom. And what would worship look like? It's the mission. He's given us. It's the work he's called us to do. It's the walk by the Spirit according to his word. It's making sure that I'm in his word enough to know what that would be. And if you're like, I just don't know what the worship decision is, it may be wait. But I don't want you to be the kind of person that's just constantly waiting. I don't know. You got to make a call. You got to make a call and you walk in faith. All right. Why do we do the things that we do? What is our motivation is the question. Because the, everything you do is a choice that you're making right? And that's government. That's self-government. That's the decision you're making with your time, with your person, with your resources. That's the question. And if I'm going to relate to God as he's calling me to, then I'm going to include what he wants in the decision. And this is Jesus in Gethsemane, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And so I have a decision to make. God told me what he wants me to do. Let me illustrate. I am in a relationship with a friend at work. I'm single. I'm not single, but let's say somebody's single. They have a relationship with someone at work um, that is uh, becoming more than friendship. And they're, uh, the person isn't married, and I'm not married. Uh, or the, 
The two people aren't married. I'm not going to personalize this because it's going to be weird. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the one, the, the guy in the situation is a believer, and the gal is a non-believer. But a, a person of goodwill, friendly, uh, you know, doesn't cheat on her taxes. She's nice. But she's not a non-believer. She doesn't trust in Christ as her Savior, which means if you understand what the New Testament says about this, it means that she's not uh, regenerate. It means that she doesn't have the spirit that is from God. It means that she is not possibly equally yoked with you. You see? But, and this happens all the time. I mean, but we get each other. It's, you never find this kind of connection. Right, I know, but this one's different. I mean, it's always true, right? And so, and so what's the decision to make here? It's time. It's time in the relationship to step it up. I'm going to advance. Do I advance towards a commitment that will eventuate in a marriage? Or do I say, uh, God gave me his revelation, 2 Corinthians 6, 6, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers because you don't have any real relationship there. And I hold out. An operation hold out. This church is built on operation hold out, meaning I'm not going to advance in this relationship until you consider the one that matters most, which is what Christ did for you and your relationship with God. Operation hold out. Welcome to um, multi-generational impact at Preston City Bible Church now. Because Christian said, "Uh uh-uh, I like you. I could see this going farther. I could see building a life with you, but not without Christ. And that seems like a crazy and radical thought. 30 years ago, it made more sense. Today, it seems insane. But that's, okay, I'll be crazy for God, as Paul says. Why do you do the things that you do? See what I mean? Like that idea of wait on, on eternal life for this person would be so foreign. Why would you ever do this? So socially awkward and retarded. Why would you ever bring spirituality into the connection between two people and, and towards, towards romance? It's so weird. But for believers, they're walking with God, they're discipled up. It's not weird at all. In fact, I can't be the husband God wants me to be unless the Spirit of Christ is filling me with his word. And my wife can't be the wife she wants, God, God wants her to be unless it's a spiritual walk with God. And, and that whole obey and submit and love, that's all the work of the Spirit and the believer. You can't do any of that as a non-believer. It's, that doesn't exist. It's foolishness, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Why do you do what you do? So now let's talk about the other institutions. The first one is the ability to choose for yourself what you'll do with your resources. What are the other institutions? Well, the second one is marriage. It's an institution of delegated authority established when God created woman in Genesis 2.24. A biblical worldview will derive our understanding of the institutions from what God's word actually says. And when God creates woman from man, he simultaneously creates woman. And the word in Hebrew for wife is, is the same word as woman. And it's true in the New Testament too. These are, these are words that are, that are, that are meanings are, are interchangeable with one word, woman and wife. And I'm not saying you have to be married to serve God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a design that God reveals in creating us. So the second institution, and it's a, it's a, it's a doozy. It's a doozy in Genesis 3. Your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. And that's bad. It's a curse in Genesis 3.16. And so Genesis 2.24 establishes this institution, and I'm calling it a delegated authority. And I could most clearly demonstrate that it's a delegated authority structure in in Ephesians 5, uh, verses uh, 22 through 33. It's most clearly taught there that there are different roles and responsibilities, and it is a hierarchical authority structure. But it isn't a hierarchical authority structure like a shepherd and sheep or like fathers and children. It's unique that you have two people of equal value working together as one, who are, Genesis 2.24, one flesh. 
It's interesting, that phrase, one flesh, doesn't just mean the sexual union. That is the sign of marriage. Apparently, it doesn't just mean that. It means that there's a special bond that goes with that in the covenant institution of marriage. And that one flesh, um, I, the best I could do to show you hierarchy in marriage between husband and wife, where the husband is over the wife in any sense, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says head and body. And the weird thing is where heads are trying to float around on their own. And bodies are walking around trying to be on their own. And that's not how it works. Head and body is unified. But there's a head role and a body role, and that's partly decision-making. And so it's very unpopular in our culture. It's very funny. If you read Mere Christianity, which was mere Anglicanism, uh, evangelical Anglicanism of the 1940s, when C.S. Lewis wrote it, he was writing the results of the radio addresses he had done to reintroduce Christianity to England during World War II, is my understanding. Mere Christianity is great. It's a wonderful Christian classic. I beat up on it a lot because he denies um, the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He says you don't have to believe that Christ died as a substitute for us to pay for our sins to understand Christ's sacrifice. He said there are other ways to understand it. And, I, and that really, every time I read this book, it's, it catches in my throat. I'm like, <sighs> and this, this shows up all over English literature. They just, there's an English Anglican like antipathy to this doctrine. Um, uh, interestingly, the Anselm of Canterbury most clearly articulated. <laughs> but um, anyway, the, the mere Christianity, uh, when he gets to marital roles, he has to really be euphemistic. He has to say, yeah, no, it's unpopular. In the 40s in England, it's unpopular that husbands are heads and wives are bodies. Husband is the head of the wife. I didn't say men are head over women. I said husband is head of wife. And, and Lewis tries to illustrate ways to understand it, and the, it really comes down to this. We're different. We're made different. We're made for different purposes. We work together and complement one another, and that's the design. And if you don't function in that complementary way, you're not functioning according to design. And so divine institution number two is marriage. Now, hopefully you can see two people, each with the capacity of divine institution number one, to make decisions. Two people making decisions. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, self-sacrificial care and love for the other person. That's what husbands are commanded to in Ephesians 5.25. Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord for this. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord um, um, uh, in uh, Ephesians 5.22. That's submission piece. That she's not commanded to love her husband there. She's commanded to submit to him. And you say that is so countercultural. But I want you to notice that in both cases, individuals are being served up a decision from God that they have to make. Will you choose God's way or will you choose whatever, whatever cultural lie is floating around out there? Or your sin nature tells you, no, I'm not going to submit. There's nothing like, um, there's nothing like uh, a command to submit to authority to showcase our arrogance and our sinfulness inherent to us. We all have it. Just as soon as someone tells me these are the rules, immediately I'm like, all right. I'm going to publish the rules. Those are great. And then you want to start throwing darts at the rules they publish on the board. That's how we are. And that's what Paul says about the law. It shows our sinfulness. But when you get past that and say, I'm not going to live my life according to my sin nature. I'm going to respond to God and live it by the Spirit because I'm really submitting to Him. When you put it in those terms and God starts issuing directives, you say, okay, my responsibility as a husband is to disregard how she treats me. This is the part where it's, it's radical. And love her as Christ loved the church. Have you ever ignored your Savior? Have you ever worked counter to him? Have you ever opposed him? Of course we have. And yet, 
The husband's role is to love her self-sacrificially all the way anyway, not looking at himself, but looking at what God wants for her. It's a beautiful and romantic idea. Let's put it on the wife in Ephesians 5.22. What is, her, what is God calling her to do? Even though he's making a, a, a fool of himself, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. How can I do that? The, the filling of the Spirit. You have the power of God in you to do the things that God is calling you to do. And now it's not about, well, he's a better person or she's a better person. Of course, guys, we all know she's a better person. It's not about that. It's about I've got a job for God in this relationship, and I'm going to choose to engage him and walk according to his instruction in this stewardship. So wives are stewards of their, their responsibility, husbands of theirs. And that's the way marriage is designed. And this is the interesting thing, believers, that the judgment seat of Christ mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I, it says nowhere in the scriptures that, that God is going to stand us up like the, like the divine marriage counselor at the judgment seat and say, well, here's how your marriage went. That's not going to be the conversation. Every individual believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to say, this is what I think of how you function as a husband or as a wife, according to my instructions and the power of the spirit that I gave you. And that's Christian divine institution number two, marriage. That's God's design. Number three, marriage produces households or families, and we read about that in Genesis chapter 4. The first, uh, uh, the first family interaction is Genesis 4. They have Cain and then Abel, and then that goes badly as we've seen. But a biblical worldview says family is going to be a problem beginning in Genesis 4. It's a nightmare. You can't say, well, Adam and Eve's family and Cain and Abel and that, you know, murdering the brother and all that. That's, you know, that was that family. Not all families are like that. No, just the only family that ever existed, the first family, the real first family, not the White House, but the real first family is murdering each other. See, we're sinners. We're broken from the factory. And we need God's grace. And God appears to Cain before he kills his brother and says, sin's crouching in the door. It's desires to control you, but you must master it. It's a choice. You're being served up with a, with a, 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 a volitional responsibility. What are you going to do with the revelation that I've given you? And Cain had a choice. He could repent. He could change his thinking and say, I gave the wrong sacrifice. I should give the right one, and I'll make the adjustment. And then I could be, uh, my countenance could be uplifted because I'm, I'm doing what God wants. I'm getting it right. Or I can in, further separate myself from God and say, I shouldn't be treated this way. And in my own arrogance and my own sinfulness, I can start insisting on my proper respect. And I can get all these miscalculations in my thinking that go against God's revelation to the point that I actually kill my brother. And this is happening in households. They're not actually killing each other, but they're, they're hating each other in every household. It's all over the place. Brothers and sisters, that sibling rivalry we talk about. Brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters. And you could say, not in our household. Well, that's God's grace because of the work of the Spirit in your life and your children's. It's a, it's a hard thing. Some of you are like, we know what you're talking about. Why do brothers and sisters grow up in church? They're Christians. They hate each other. Because the I3, you're not making your choices for God's sake. You're not relating back to him in how you deal with your family, with your parents, with your, with your children, with your siblings. But it's a divine institution, parents over their children, Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, 6, 1 through uh, 3 and um, elsewhere. And also we've said that the household, according to Deuteronomy 6, is the place where the children learn to control themselves and govern themselves for God's sake. They learn to use their volition. 
It's the, it's the nursery. It's the, it's the place where the tree grows in order to be strong to be able to, to do its job. And so the household, if you see, when you see a broken down household where the children aren't being trained to restrain their lust, where they're not trained to worship God in their choices, we're not trained that your volition is yours, it's a gift from God, it's a delegation, you need to live that way. We're not given a biblical world you could see, okay, we get all kinds of horrific problems. And now you have a culture where people are just going and doing what they feel. And they're not thinking about their responsibilities to God. And so it's crazy. I made a bad choice there. (laughs) Divine institution number four is the part where you say God and government. People think of, well, that's what we're kind of talking about, civil government. And that's introduced in Genesis 9-6 where humans are given responsibility over humans that are in the same household. Genesis 9-6, it's where capital punishment is introduced for murdering the image bearer of God. If you, bearing God's image, destroy the other image bearer unrighteously, then you, you forfeited your certificate. You've got to be executed too. And that's, that's the origin of civil government. And do you see how all of these relate to individual volition? Don't do anything to destroy other people. And then a righteous government won't have any cause to destroy you. Ta-da. Number five in the flow of Revelation of Genesis is the, the nation. The nation is a controversial one because of uh, the, the liberal trope of Christian nationalism. But we're not talking about red or blue or elephants or donkeys, Democrats and Republicans. We're talking about God's institutions. And he did by making households and then separating them out by language, he did make nations. We didn't make nations. He made nations. You're not defying God by learning a foreign language. You're demonstrating that God did something between the nations by language and family and clan in Genesis 10.5. And then the story of how that happened is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11.1-9. And God did this in response to man's rejection of his revelation. God said, spread out and go subdue and reign in Genesis 9. And then man said, let's clump together and build a tower because otherwise we'll be spread out. They directly defied, as a, as a civilization, a new civilization, they directly defied God's revelation. And so God said, okay, they're going to be able to do anything they want, meaning to revolt against me in aggregate as far as they possibly can. So I'll divide the nations, and I'll divide them out into languages according to their families. And it's a nice thing he did. He didn't count everybody one, two, three, four, five, six, and give everybody a number one through six, and then the twos go over here, and the sixes go over here, and the fives go over there. That, that's how we do mixers in parties, right? He actually took households, and they all ended up speaking the same language, and clans and families, and he separated them out, and that is the genetic, linguistic, cultural basis for nation. And God did that. And the only answer, historically, is that God did that. And by the way, when we're talking about language, we're talking about a mystery and a miracle. Because you, as a baby, learned a language without any reference to other languages. The brain function of hearing your mother talk with all her many words and those around you speak and intuiting a language that is your mother language, your first language, that is a miracle and there is no biological explanation for this. There is no Darwinistic demonstration of this. This is something that God does with human beings. And every language you learn thereafter is by analogy to that mother language that you learn when you're first uh, learning a language. And we're talking about God stuff 
and how he made us. It's marvelous. It's, and language is a powerful thing, and people want to deny its power. Oh, you really don't know what he meant because it's, you know, it's his culture. No, language cuts through and does communicate, and you can know that you have eternal life if you have the Son. And you do know what the Son is. He's God in the flesh of man at Merry Christmas, who died for your sins on Good Friday and rose from the dead on Easter so that you could have eternal life right now and forevermore. So my question on the five human institution that God gave all mankind, I consider local church as a divine institution, but it is only for believers. But these five general institutions, how does the first one of volition relate to all of these? This is such a helpful thought. What's wrong with our government? What's wrong with our country? What's wrong with blah, blah, blah? Why are the households in disarray? Why are the marriages broken? Why, 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 why? It isn't because they made just bad choices and they didn't find someone they're compatible with because divorce hasn't been a big problem in world history. It's been a, a problem, but not a big problem. It hadn't been a culture-defining thing, but now it defines our culture, and the children grow up without their parents. The children grow up divided and broken, and there's a huge impact on them, and it's multi-generational. And I'm not judging anyone. It's the culture that we live in, but it's not how it's designed. What, what's happened? It's individual volition. Aggregate together, we have billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of decisions being made all the time. And the question is, believers in Christ, are you making your decisions in worship to God? Because what you do with your wife, men, will be that. I will honor her as a fellow heir of life because Peter told me to in the power of the Spirit in 1 Peter 3.7. I'll honor her as a fellow heir of life. Ladies, we'll read 1 Peter 3.1-6 and try that. And that's, I'm not going to say it out loud, it's really controversial. But you can see how everybody's making their choices and we're like, it's broken. I mean, so what if I make my good choice? I go in Connecticut and I vote. I make a choice with my franchise and I vote, right? One vote, doesn't really count, who cares? Well, but all my decisions are aggregating together to a life of worship to God. That's the only hope for this culture. I don't see a lot of hope for this culture. But individuals making their choices in worship to God, that's the reformation that you would be looking for to, to see uh, the train not jump the tracks and us crash. And by crash, I mean remove uh, protections for minors, you know, where, where, where pedophilia becomes normalized. They're, they're minor attracted persons now. I mean, because it's offensive to call them groomers, right? Even though they are, and they should be, I think, executed, those that prey on children sexually. I think they should be executed because they're destroying God's image, but nobody put me in charge, and I'm not going to violate my responsibility to God by taking matters into my own hands, right? I'm going to make my choices, all of them, in the institutions that God's given me, and I'm going to serve him, worship him with those decisions. You've done that today by joining together in prayer and in God's word and in song. Praise to him. This is government. This is what's wrong. It's us. It's the human race. We're not going to get it right till Jesus comes and heaven and nature sing. Can we talk a little bit about the abuse of volition? Oh, this is so very dry. Could you tell us a story? I can't tell you a story, but I can share a poem by that famous and notable poet, Carol, Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> Merry Christmas. They keep trying to write songs that'll capture something that they'll keep playing. Mark Lowry got us with Mary, did you know? The answer is generally yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> My grown-up Christmas list. Have you heard this? It's in pop radio. Um, it's way better than uh, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. 
by Paul McCartney, um, but pop Christian radio, pop Christmas radio, and I love Christmas, and, and so it's Christmas time. So this is the poem that she wrote or that she, she recorded. I don't know if she wrote it, but it's her recording. And, um, and it's on the radio and different. And now people are covering it. Bands are covering it with their version of my grown-up Christmas list. And it's got a good melody. I think it's got a great little melody to it. It's, uh, it's very, very melodic, very uh, pretty the way it sounds. And um, I love when the, they actually make music with a melody. It's a, it reminds me that we're God's image bearers. But uh, So we start with a nostalgia. And we're talking to Santa Claus. Do you remember me? I sat on your knee. I wrote you with childhood fantasies. And nobody... Uh, probably in this room ever did anything like that. But we're talking about the cultural notion of little kids asking Santa for stuff. And so we're going to move beyond our desire for material possessions and our nostalgia for Santa Claus, and we're going to talk about what we really want. And I want you to look at the end of the poem. At the end, before the last chorus, she says, what is this illusion called the innocence of youth? Maybe only if our blind belief, maybe only in our blind belief can we ever find the truth. See, by the time it gets to that in the song, I'm not listening anymore, so I never caught that part. Maybe in our our blind belief, only in our blind belief, can we ever find the truth. We're grasping for something that really matters, and every kid in this church is going to have something like this Christmas morning. And here's what it is. You got, you know, in our house, we really spoil the kids. They each get two presents for Christmas. And uh, that's, you're all supposed to, you know, like, laugh about that. Um, Thank you for laughing on, on cue. But every kid's going to get the presents. And what are those presents going to do? Well, Dr. Seuss has a beautiful description of it in The Grinch. The ribbons, the wrappings, the, 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 the Zumbas, and all the noise, and all the noise, 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 and the kids are going to play with it and run around and play. They are going to do that, but what else are they going to do? They're going to look under that tree for more stuff, and there's no more stuff because they've opened all the stuff. And that's their set. That's it. That's all Christmas because Christmas only comes once a year. That's it. That's it. Some of your kids who are more expressive than those are going to say, is that it? And they're going to be taught. I don't say that. (laughs) All right. So there we are at Christmas, and we've finished opening everything, and we discover something. It's a wonderful experiment that hopefully the kids get by the time they're eight, that no matter how many presents I open, I'm not going to be happy by opening presents or playing with them. It's not where it is, right? So congratulations. We've discovered what the eight-year-olds better learn, that it's fun, and we are celebrating Christ, and he's the great gift. Now, some of you I've talked to, you don't do Christmas presents for this reason because Jesus is the present. I think there's great value to to thinking this through for the training of children. But um, nevertheless, we're trying to move in this poem from the materialistic, I want my toys, to the things that I really want that are the really good things. And we get real altruistic and human good uh, comes out. And here's what we're after. Here's my lifelong grown-up Christmas list, not for myself, but for a world in need. I'm not asking this for me, but for the whole world. And now we're going to feed the world with Bono in the 80s, uh, Band-Aid. You know, that's Christmas song. No more lives torn apart. That wars would never start. Time would heal all hearts, so people would, would, would feel better, and, and their, their emotional set would be stabilized. Very valuable thing. I'm seeking that for all of you. Not that time would heal all hearts, but you would, uh, you would have the consolation of the Spirit in Philippians 2. Everyone would have a friend. Let's capital F that friend. Everyone would have Christ as their creator, a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. 
Right would always win. Love would never end. These are millennial desires. These are things that we want God to do because they're things of God. And so we're talking about choices. How long are you supposed to love your wife, men? Until you die. Until she dies. And uh, then you get your certificate back. But it's for life. Marriage. And you're supposed to love her every day as Christ loved the church. That love would never end. How about choosing that? See, volition enters into all of these. Uh, Monsieur Putin has, uh, has decided that Ukraine is really Russia. Right? This is a choice that he's made. I saw one article yesterday that there, there may be a coup forming to remove him because of the, the, before he starts dropping nukes to get his way. This is heads of state making choices. And there are all kinds of people involved in these choices. But I'm just saying every one of these things is an aggregation of individual volition. Everyone would have a friend. Have you ever thought about why you don't have friends if you don't? One of the issues is being a friend. You want to be the friend that you'd like to have and then you can have the friend that you're being to, toward others, right? I, I've dealt with you. Uh, I've dealt with you for going 16 years, and I've loved you and, and worshipped with you, and I've heard your complaints and your and your and your uh, comments and compliments. And and one of the things I keep hearing from people is that they come to fellowship things and no one comes to talk to them. I mean, I've heard this over the years. It hasn't been so bad in the last few years, but it was this thing that I hear. And I would say, well, we need to do better about that and break through the bubble or whatever. But, you know, in, in a lot of these cases where the person's complaining, they have a force field around them. They're like a, they're like a, a, a porcupine that's puffed up, ready to stab somebody if they come talk to them. And, that, and, and some of you are knowledgeably saying, yes, we're Yankees and we're here in the cold and all that. But, but there's this like force field. And so you want people to talk to you. You want to be engaged. You want people to care about you. Well, you're, you're looking at you, right? What should you do? You should choose to look at the other person. What do they need? And start being about that. And that's where friends come from as you go make them by being a friend to them. Anyway, that's just practical advice about Christian love out of John 13, 34, 35. But these things are the consequence of volition. These are all human volition things. And they're all broken because man is broken and we abuse our volition. As we close down, I want to ask the question about the abuse of volition. Why do we make wrong choices? You know, right? Why we make wrong choices? <laughs> my kids hear all my stuff before I share it with you. Bless their hearts. All right. The reason we do things we shouldn't do is because we want to. It's proof that we're fallen and broken and sinful and selfish and all the things that go with it. We're arrogant. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. We do the things we shouldn't do because we want to. Amen. Also, because we feel like it. That gets into wanting to. I felt like, why'd you hit your brother? I felt like it. You ever choose to get angry and think about it next time you do this? I mean, don't do it, but next time you do it. Think about how it feels to kind of go there. Here comes the adrenaline. Here comes I get to be angry now. I think Andrew Clavin, who I won't often quote, but I think he's right about this. I think he's right to say that anger is the devil's cocaine. It feels good. It's addictive. You think you're right in the moment, and you get completely divorced from reality as you're angry. And I say this to my children. Anger makes us stupid. We think we're smart, and as much as we think we're smart, we're that much stupider than we would be if we just were not angry. Don't do anything in anger, right? But 
we feel like it. We do the wrong thing because we feel like it with anger as one example. And because we don't know what the right choice is sometimes. Oh, he didn't know any better. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But this gets to ignorance. Really, when we feel like doing the wrong thing, we know the issue and we choose the wrong thing, it's because we don't believe the right choice is better. I thought about this a little bit. Isn't this true? When you do things that you know you shouldn't do, isn't it that you, like, whatever you think you'll get from it will be more desirable than if you don't do it? And so you're, it's a faith problem. It's, it's subtle, but it's a faith problem. I'm believing in this moment that the consequence that God said is not really going to happen. It's, it'll be okay. It's not going to be that bad. I think God is, uh, has a special uh, set of disciplines for us that show us that, no, it is going to be that bad, and so don't go there. That's divine discipline, and you have a heavenly Father who will spank you in Hebrews chapter 12. But we don't believe the right choice is better than the wrong choice. It's a faith problem. So there are two key weaknesses that I see in our bad choices and the abuse of our volition. The first is ignorance. I didn't know that it was the wrong thing. And the second is a weak faith. These are the problems. Is that not why, what the problem is? Now, notice I just introduced a problem, a twofold problem that I have the actual solution for. You and I all just became nails, and I have a hammer to hit us with. It is exactly what is the answer to our bad choices, to the abuse of volition. I had to make, I had to sacrifice my free market principles in order to save the free market. That's George Bush toward the end of his presidency (laughs) as we started going off the rails with spending. Bad choice. Now, ignorance and a weak faith are the two issues. If I'm ignorant, it's because I haven't benefited from God's revelation. God has resolved our ignorance by revealing himself. I didn't know, and now I do, because God told me, and that's the issue. And that's what this is, word for word. It's God's word, word for word, God breathed, and profitable for instruction and righteousness. He's resolved the ignorance by self-revelation. So much of God's interaction with man is communication. Why would I say God is ultimately communicating with us? He's doing other things. He's promoting us and helping us along the way. But what is this issue of communication? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Jesus is called the Word of God. It's God's self-disclosure. He is God's self-revelation. Knowing God changes us to be more like Him, and that's so vital. And so what we're driving towards is the Word of God. Two kinds of ignorance. I hope you know this from Proverbs. There are two kinds of ignorance. Still got you? Still with me? Two kinds of ignorance. The first one is uh, inherent ignorance, like all the teenagers that think they know but they don't know, or the younger children that just don't know yet. They didn't mean to. They didn't mean to be ignorant. They just didn't know. I remember being a little kid once. This is this is kind of kind of cute. I was a little kid, and my mother um, would say this phrase that I didn't understand when I was little. She'd say it's over yonder, over yonder. But she said over yonder because we're from Texas. She would say, over yonder. Over yonder. I thought it was a contraction, over your under. I thought you were supposed to spread your legs and then look underneath, behind you, to see where it was. I really thought that's what it meant. I was little. I was into that. I was into bending, looking down and looking behind me. Over, I really thought that's what it meant. And she, once, once we came to terms on this, she said, it's, go get it. It's over yonder. And I did that. I looked down like that. And she said, what are you doing? I'm trying to find it. It's over yonder. And that's really what I thought it meant. I was ignorant. And she explained, no, son, it's over yonder. Yonder means there, over there. I said, oh, why did you say over there? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I, believe me. All right. 
but we have an inherent ignorance, and it's cute, and that's why we like to, to watch, you know, little kids, because they don't understand yet, but they're coming to understand. But then there's a willful ignorance. It's the choice to stay ignorant. It's, I choose not to hear. You're talking to me, but I'm not going to listen. I, 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 I can't hear a thing you're saying. That kind of ignorance. And it's all over the Proverbs, the willful fool, and he is the casile, the fool, because of his willfulness. How do we resolve the problem of ignorance? Psalm 1-2, I'm meditating in God's word day and night. I'm no longer ignorant because I'm consumed with the things of God and he's told me, and now I know. How does the solution, what's the, how does the solution to ignorance relate to my strengthening of my faith? If God's word is the answer to ignorance, so now that I know because he told me, what am I supposed to do with God's word? I mix it with faith. When you receive God's word, you must believe it. That's it. It's that simple. You're like, well, my life is really complicated. I know. But the solution to your problems, while it takes time and, and, and commitment and walking with him, it's not a complicated solution. It's a steady walk with him according to what he said. When you receive God's word, you have to believe it. Spiritual knowledge is the union of God's word and our faith. You do know things because God told you if you trust him when he tells you. If you don't believe what he said, then you don't know it. And this is where we seem radical, epistemologically. We say we know things because God told us and we believed him. Everything in our worldview comes about by this vital connection of God's revelation and our faith. We mix our faith with God's word. And this is like the doctrine of incarnation. You can't have Christianity without God the Son taking on flesh of mankind, which we celebrate at Christmas. You can't have Christianity. It isn't Christian if you have something other than the actual creator, the second person of the Trinity, becoming one of us in human flesh and still being God in the flesh of man. That's the central conviction. Nobody understands that. Nobody fully grasps that. We believe that because God said that. It's faith in God's word that defines everything about our worldview. That's why it's so challenging. You have to stay close to the word because if you have that that faith, if you say, I'm going to trust in what God's word says, and then the pastor comes up and says things that God hasn't said, that's, that's where we get into trouble. That's where we get some serious problems. Because I'm supposed to believe in God's word, and he's supposed to say God's word, but he's not saying God's word. He's saying his word. We want the word of God, not the word of Dave. So Christian spirituality, mixing God's word with our faith, is inseparably united to this union. So how does your volition resolve the problems of ignorance and weak faith? Well, we're back to the problem of the abuse of volition, ignorance and weak faith. How do you resolve the problem of ignorance and weak faith with your volition? It's an interesting loop. You avail yourself of God's word and you choose to believe it. These are actions of your volition and you've taken it today. You've said, let's get in the word. You see it? It's so vital. This is human self-government. This is taking God's revelation and my freedom to choose and saying yes to the things of God. And then uh, you are on a process to grown up spirit, Christmas list. You're on a process to spiritual growth and development, and you're starting to think and want the things that God thinks and wants. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we close this morning with the words of life for anyone who may be hearing my voice without eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. He died for you because he loved you and gave himself for you, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He loved me and gave himself for me. He is the propitiation or the satisfaction toward God for our sins, according to 1 John 2, and not our sins only, but those of the whole world. The gospel is this, that Jesus died for your sins in your place. He paid for your sins on the cross so that you could have eternal life because there is no relationship with God apart from uh, this payment for sin. 
and uh, you can't do anything about it. You can't stop sinning. That's not going to do it. You're not going to atone for your previous sins by your good works or your actions of, of charity. It's going to be the grace gift of eternal life through the work of Christ on the cross, the greatest act of charis, of grace, of love in all of world history. Father, we thank you for eternal life, for your son, for the privilege we had to think about these thoughts together and be equipped to see our choices as opportunities to worship as you've designed us. Help us be good stewards of that delegation in Jesus' name. Amen.